Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Prices pumped, U.S. inflation rises at the fastest pace in 13 years. Volkswagen vaults, the carmaker goes all in on electric and autonomous mobility. And Musk misery, he tells a court he'd rather hates being Tesla's CEO. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. We've got another jam-packed show for you this Tuesday. Earnings season in the United States has begun. And surprise or no surprise, banks are earning a lot. Consumer prices come in extremely hot. And as I said there, Elon Musk says being CEO of Tesla, well... He'd rather not. Yes, Musk said that during a court appearance on Monday that he actually hates running the electric vehicle company. Perhaps he thinks it's boring. See what I did there? Boring company. Yes. Moving on. Nothing boring about today's start to earnings season. JP Morgan's Q2 earnings saw 150% year over year. The big bank buzz, the release of $3 billion set aside for bad loans. Goldman Sachs' profits powering ahead too, thanks to fees from deal making and listings companies IPOing. Not our only focus, though, today. U.S. consumer price data showing a much greater than expected 5.4% year-over-year rise last month. The comparison, of course, with what was going on this time last year, important, but it is the highest levels since 2008. So it's a day of rising profits and rising prices. But is it a day of rising stocks? Not after that number. Some real caution feeding into the markets. The Dow easing back from that 35,000 mark. What about Europe too. Well, as you can see, easing back from records too. Though Asia had a strong session. China saw an expectation beating 32% rise in June exports, easing some of those broader slowdown fears. China also said, and this is crucial, supply bottlenecks are easing, though I have to say there are other signals from the region suggesting entirely the opposite. We're also watching the U.S. administration today. President Biden set to warn U.S. companies about operating Operating in Hong Kong due to China's growing influence. That, according to various reports, the White House also reportedly mulling a multi-nation digital trade deal, though excluding China. If we get this news, it's going to be seen as lines in the sand being drawn, I have to say. All right, let's get to the drivers. Much to discuss. U.S. consumer prices taking a jarring June jump. Sure to test the patience of Fed Chair Jay Powell. We also, as I mentioned, have bank earnings in focus. Paul and Monica joins me now. Paul, let's talk about that U.S. inflation data. I mentioned it, and it is important. The comparison with a year ago's numbers is important, given what was going on. We were mid-pandemic, of course, but it's used cars and it's energy and food costs that are driving certainly the headline number higher. Yeah, exactly, Julia. The used car price spike is still making up a very significant portion of the overall rise in consumer prices. And I think for that reason, we're going to likely continue to hear, drumroll please, it's transitory from Fed Chair Jay Powell. I don't think this number, as alarming as it may seem on the surface, it's probably not going to be something that the Fed is going to be too concerned about because they are going to continue to say, that this too shall pass and they're not going to overreact to some of these supply chain induced pricing pressures that we're seeing. Even though if you're a consumer, there's little solace in the fact that, you know, when you're trying to buy a car or go to the grocery store, 
they're a lot more expensive, both cars used and new, as well as food at uh, you know many places. So I think it's a problem for the economy, but it may not be a problem for the markets and investors. Yeah, I was doing a little quiet drum roll there in the background for you. And of course, drum roll, because we are going to be hearing from Jay Powell this week. He's testifying before Congress. So I agree with you. We're going to hear him say, look, we expect these pricing pressures to moderate. But he is going to get questions from congressmen and women saying, look, you know, my uh, constituents are complaining about rising prices. My small businesses in my um, in my states are struggling with what they're seeing. Hiring is also a critical angle here. All of this feeds into what we're seeing from the banks today. JP Morgan, a resurgent consumer, the recovery is ensuing. And as a result, they're releasing a whole lot of the cash that they set aside for tensioned troubles in light of the pandemic. Yeah, about $3 billion's worth, Julia. I think that is a sign of confidence from JP Morgan Chase CEO, Jamie Dimon, that, as you point out, the consumer is still healthy. They are borrowing. They are spending. There are cracks, certainly in the housing market, concerns about how high prices have gone and whether or not we might finally get a slowdown there. But for the time being, this is a good period for consumer banks like J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs as well. Both of them, obviously, Wall Street rivals, and they are clearly benefiting from this boom in demand for new stocks, be it IPOs or SPACs and you know, companies issuing debt as well, and, and a lot of merger activity too. Yeah, it's the investment banking part of the business that's showing such strength for both of these. To your point, the number of companies that are coming to market listing, the deal making going on, signs of toppish markets, though, as we know, given the amount of stimulus out there, these things can carry on for a while. What about trading activity? Because again, this time last year, and the comparisons are always important, furious trading activity and market volatility. Some of the comparisons were always going to be tough here. Yeah, market volatility has clearly dropped pretty significantly. But I think that all things being equal, if you're a Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, you know Morgan Stanley, all the others are going to be reporting this week, even though things may be quieter, I think you're happy with this slow grind up because it's lifting every other part of the business, even if you don't have the frenzied pace of trading that we saw in the second quarter of 2020. Yes, Financials first class, at least so far. Inflation intense. Will it be transitory? Thank you, Paul. Great to have you with us. All right, let's move on. Europe's biggest car maker outlining plans to electrify sales. Volkswagen says by 2030, half the cars it sells worldwide will be electric and that by 2040, those will be the only kind it's selling. The automaker is also betting big on self-driving and software-related software. Anna Stewart joins me now. Anna, I have to say, and this is clearly a big company and an umbrella company because it has many brands beneath it, that when I read a press release and I'm scratching around on the first page <laughs> to work out what the headline is, perhaps I'm going to be disappointed relative to some of the other car makers. Hmm. What yeah, do you Julia. make of this announcement? <laughs> I think you're not alone on feeling a little bit disappointed, particularly by that overall headline figure. They're planning to be 50% all electric, so batteries not hybrid by 2030 and nearly 100% electric by 2040. This is from the car maker that actually beat Tesla last year in terms of overall electric vehicle sales. But compare it to the other car makers and what they've pledged uh, in recent weeks and months for Europe 
he will look, uh, it does look a bit disappointing. So we have Volvo and Ford, both all electric by 2030. Um, Audi, which of course is one of the brands owned by VW, all electric by 2033. And actually Renault and Stellantis, which owns Fiat and Peugeot, also have slightly more ambitious targets than VW at this stage. Sales of Volkswagen's uh, battery, battery electric vehicles uh, were quite disappointing actually so far this year. I was reading a report from Bernstein last week, which said that in order to hit their annual sales target, they would actually have to double their monthly sales. I'd also say, Julia, if we were feeling a little bit cynical, and I know you and I never feel cynical, but if we were, this is really the last opportunity and Volkswagen could make this sort of pledge, this sort of announcement, because tomorrow, uh, according to what we're expecting from the EU, their hand could really be forced. Yes, you and I are the least two cynical people we know, <laughs> she says. Um, talk to me about that, because that is really important. We spoke to the EU's climate envoy last week and actually we honed in on some of the challenges for going green for these car makers. Mm. But he said, despite pushback in previous years, and oh boy, they've had a lot, that there's been a real sea change in terms of the car makers thinking. I guess the question is, is that choice or are they being pushed? I think it's a little bit of both at this stage. Yeah. And tomorrow we're expecting this uh, big policy announcement called uh, oh, Fit for 55. There it is. It's a climate policy package. And essentially this is uh, to help the EU reach 55% of emissions compared to 2019. To give you an idea of where they are, that's by 2030. Currently, uh, they're at 24%. They've got a long way to go. And transport accounts for around a fifth of EU emissions overall. So that is why transport is likely to be mega targeted in this policy announcement tomorrow. We are expecting that possibly combustion engines could be effectively banned by 2035. That would be a huge announcement. And actually, the emissions targets we're expecting could be so strict that it could actually push out hybrid entirely. So putting a lot of pressure here on a transition to battery electric vehicles, putting pressure on those supply chains. And within the announcement today from Volkswagen, they did reiterate that they are planning to have six gigafactories uh, up and running in Europe by 2030. Julia? Yes, thank you very much for that. Fascinating to watch and um, great analysis of a report. It only just came out too, so great job. Anna Stewart, thank you very much for that. And I'll just apologise briefly to our viewers for the noise effects that were going on there. We're working on it. Live television, the joys. Now, don't worry if you don't like your job. One of the world's richest men says he hates his, one of his, let's be clear. Tesla CEO Elon Musk made the revelation during a court case as he defended the acquisition of Solar City. Claire Sebastian has been following the story for us. Never a dull moment in Elon Musk land, Claire. And we'll talk about what he said there. But just explain Solar City. I mean, this was a, a company that um, Tesla acquired several years ago, and he was a 22% owner. And these, the people that bought the uh, action suitor saying, hey, it was effectively a bailout to help himself, among others. Yeah, that is the crux of this case, Julia. This dates back to 2016. The, uh, the original complaint was actually filed before the merger between Tesla and SolarCity was, was, was approved by shareholders. Uh, and it alleges that, that Elon Musk and the, the board of directors basically breached their fiduciary duties to shareholders and went ahead with this acquisition at a too high a price. Uh, and in a sense, it was a bailout of a highly indebted company. Now, it did, of course, raise some eyebrows at the time. You'll remember when, when it was announced, SolarCity's share price went up a lot. Tesla's share price went down a lot. Uh, that shows you that, that shareholders were a bit worried uh, about it. But it was all part, according to Elon Musk, uh, then and now, he defended himself, uh, that it was part of his master plan to create this sort of sustainable energy company with electric cars uh, and solar panels. So, this is that is the crux of the case. That is the, the acquisition in question. The issue is a question of control. That is the legal test. Elon Musk, at the time of this acquisition, owned about 22 percent of both companies. That does not make him 
the controlling shareholder. But what the court uh, and the lawyer for the plaintiffs has tried to argue is that because of his, uh, and I'm quoting the original complaint here, his his dynamism and his cult following, he was able to exercise control over the board and force through this acquisition. This is something that Musk defended himself against vigorously, saying, again, this is part of his sustainable energy master plan, and he did not exercise undue control over other members of the board. Yeah, and that ties to the point that we made coming into this and the sort of revelations about hating their job and perhaps the pressure that comes with it. You know, they have no marketing budget. He does it himself because he's so powerful. And therefore, when he changes his title to the techno king of Tesla, everyone watches it. It gives him him good PR. It perhaps doesn't surprise me, given the intensity of the focus and sometimes the hate that he faces. The Bitcoin on the balance sheet example is a classic one that at times he finds being the boss... um, limiting yeah he's been he's been honest about this in the past that that he finds it it's stressful that it's all consuming you remember that he uh, at one point was was sleeping in the on the factory floor and, and he talked about this again uh, during the court yesterday he says he doesn't really want to be uh, the boss of anything he'd much rather focus on on engineering and design but 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 without him tesla would would apparently die is, is what he said and look shareholders and uh, and analysts have said the same that musk is tesla uh, and tesla is musk uh, but but the court again is trying to show that the lawyer for the plaintiffs that that is an area where he exerts undue control over the company. What he is saying is that this is essentially free advertising, that he thinks he's quite funny, that his sense of humor, his tweets essentially bring attention to the company and mean that they never have to spend money on advertising. So that was one of the arguments that he made. He continues with this case, Julia. It could take two weeks and, and it could be a, you know, a landmark uh, sort of settlement if it goes against him in, in the sort of history of these kinds of shareholder lawsuits. Yeah, I mean, he made the point. Um, I, I, I rather hate being the CEO, but quote, I, the company would die without him. That's a fascinating statement to make as well. Very quickly, what might it cost if it goes against him? What's the liability here? Do we have any sense? We don't know exactly, Julia. The, uh, the the deal was worth about two billion at the time. The, the the plaintiffs are seeking unspecified monetary damages that could include court and legal fees as well. So it could be significant, but at the moment we don't really know the scale of that. Sum. Yeah, I, I saw one estimate saying two point six billion dollars, and I checked the Bloomberg Billionaire Index. Musk net worth estimated at one hundred and eighty-seven billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Context is everything. <laughs> Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. South African police say more than 30 people have died in violent protests that erupted this weekend. Demonstrators have been clashing with authorities. Some have looted stores and malls, leading to more than 700 arrests. The government has deployed the military to try and quell the unrest. CNN's David McKenzie is with us from Johannesburg. David, just explain what we're seeing here, because these protests, I believe, began in response to the uh, decision with regards Jacob Zuma. Um, And of course, now it seems to have expanded into something differently. And I'm just watching you. Just explain where you are. Well, Julia, I'm here in Alexandra, an area near Johannesburg, close to one of the uh, richest parts of the continent. And right there, you can see a APC, a military vehicle, with several soldiers inside it. They've uh, deployed throughout the city in this province and in KwaZulu-Natal province today to try and quell this unrest and this looting. This morning, uh, Julia, we were out seeing people looting with impunity. 
completely cleaning out several malls in Soweto, south of the city. It has been chaotic scenes. I have not seen scenes like this in South Africa in many decades. As we see uh, another military vehicle pass by, the earlier they were running battles in this area, uh, and the military does seem to be coming out in force now. But whether they have the numbers to, in fact, keep the peace remains to be seen. The president has called for calm. Earlier, we spoke to... Actually, let me just show this unfold. You know, scenes like this are unthinkable these days in South Africa, in a democratic country for more than 20 years. Having to bring the military out to try and stop the population from looting. This was started, Julia, because of the imprisonment of former President Jacob Zuma, but I think it spiraled beyond that at this point. More than 30 people killed at the best estimates. Hundreds of people have been arrested. Uh, and these are the scenes unfolding right now in Johannesburg, Julia. It looks very quiet behind you, David, apart from... Um Obviously, the, the forces that we can see there are people just staying out the way and staying off the streets in these areas. Well, it might be quiet right this second, but it certainly hasn't been quiet throughout this country. If you just step with me here, you know, these are normally vibrant businesses in the heart of Johannesburg. Right now, there's a fire going on inside. Uh, excuse me. Let me put this back in inside this building. Uh, and there are no uh, firefighters here at the moment. You can smell the acrid smoke. Uh, so, yeah, it hasn't been calm at all. Right this second, it's calm because people are afraid of soldiers right. with live ammunition. We saw at least one person uh, shot with live ammunition earlier today. The police have been using non-lethal uh, force, which hasn't seemed to have had much effect, given how thinly they stretched in both Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal province. Uh, I just want to hear uh, from one shopkeeper explaining the impact on his livelihood. Even right now, we have, where are you going to stay? What am I going to eat? What am I going to do? We don't know nothing, really. We lose everything. How do you feel about what's happening? This is very painful, and I don't know what can I say about that. This is not our fault. I don't know what happened to the government. We don't know, but this is not our fault. We didn't do nothing. We just lose like that. Well, millions and millions of dollars clearly lost in this. Uh, South Africa is already struggling through a COVID-19 pandemic and an intense third wave. Several vaccine sites, Julia, have been uh, closed today because of that. Uh, there does seem a little bit of order being restored at least this afternoon, but it's fluctuating. There's reports of other areas being looted uh, this afternoon, so I don't think this is over by any means. Julia? No, and to your point, the anger about much more than just Jacob Zuma. It's um, a challenging time, more than challenging. David, stay safe. Thank you for your report. David McKenzie there. We're back after this. Welcome back to First Move. Since 2010, crowdfunding site GoFundMe has raised $15 billion from millions of donations worldwide. Last year was its biggest year ever, with a donation made every second. As COVID-19 hit, many turned to the site to raise money for things like rent, food, utilities and medical bills. In fact, a recent study showed almost 25% of the money went to just 1% of campaigns. Lots to discuss. Joining us now is Tim Cadigan. He's the CEO of GoFundMe. Tim, so great to have you on the show. And all I can say is thank goodness for this platform, in particular over the last 12 to 18 months. Just talk us through what you've seen, in particular the growth, I think, that you've seen in need. 
Yeah, hi, Julia. It's great to be here, and thank you very much for those kind words. Um, yes, obviously, over the past year and a half, we saw a tremendous amount of activity on the platform, a lot of that related to COVID. Um, now, fortunately, certainly in the U.S., we've started to see things shift. Um, and thank goodness for all of us that COVID, you know, we've begun to beat it here in the U.S. And as a result, we've started to see the number of fundraisers for COVID-related causes beginning to, to decline. And we started to see normal life come back. Um, and so you started to see people raise for things like community activities. Um, you started to see people starting to start fundraisers and get support for their dreams. Things like uh, getting ready for the Olympics um, at, the, at the high end. And then at the small end, people funding uh, their little league teams. So we're starting to see that shift, particularly really in the second quarter, as, as COVID started to to wane with the vaccination rate and normal life has started to come back and thank heavens for that. Yeah, raising funds for some of the joys of life, the fun things in life, as opposed to the yes. basic necessities of survival, quite frankly. And I know you've been incredibly passionate about that, that this shouldn't be a social safety net. The government, wherever you are in the world, has to step up and provide support in emergencies like this. Um, I saw a statistic saying at one point you had 10,000 people starting a GoFundMe every day. Can you give us a sense of the, even just the kind of numbers that you're seeing today? relative to that. Yes, I mean, that's, that's actually normal, right? That's, that's, about, <laughs> that's about normal. Um, um, and I mean, look, if you think about it, there's a lot going on in life. And yeah. uh, at any point in our lives, nearly any of us need support. Um, and so it's, it's, it's really a great thing to be able to say, you know what, I'm at a point in my life where I need support. I would like my friends, my family, my community to mobilize around me and support me for that, whether that be for a need say an urgent need or long-term need or for some aspiration or ambition or dream. And so we think very much about needs and dreams and how do we help people um, address both of those. So that's, that's kind of the balance of what we see going on. But the level of activity is, is very high. And as you mentioned in the intro, you know, more than a donation every second, you know, that's someone taking time and their resources to help someone else else every second, the moments of kindness every second. And it's an incredible thing to see. And you caught my attention in the past week because you announced a deal with PayPal as well. And before people couldn't use PayPal, and I'm sure you were inundated with requests simply to make making a donation easier. I believe people can also pay in crypto if they choose to, too. Tim, talk to me about that deal, because I think the potential for, for doing good is vast. Well, yes, thank you. And uh, we're very, very pleased to, to, to have launched that. Um, so we, we want to make it as easy as possible for people to do two things. One, to ask for help, and two, to give help. So the PayPal deal is part of obviously giving help. And so how do we make it as familiar and easy for anyone to say, hey, there's, there's someone's campaign, there's a cause that I want to support. What's the way of paying that I'm most familiar with? And what engenders trust as well? Because when you're giving to a campaign, you want to make sure that you can trust that your money's going to go to the right place that's handled in the right way. And for a lot of people, PayPal is a very trusted way of paying. And so being able to put that there in the donation flow was really, really important. Explain to me how you make money, because I think a lot of people will be wondering, you know, when someone makes a donation, let's say they make a $100 donation, 
what part of that goes to you? Because I know you, you had a change in the past couple of years where you decided to, it was voluntary contribution. What are you willing to pay GoFundMe in order to be able to use these services? But break down that $100 for me. What goes yes, where? Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> actually, very little goes to us. So we've really spent a lot of time trying to think about how do we get the most amount of money to the per person who's asking for help? That's the whole point. That's our whole company. That's what we do. And so let's say you get a raise $100. The only part that comes out of that is the 2.9% for transaction processing, which is the totally standard rate that is paid anytime you use a credit or debit card. You can go to the supermarket pumping gas. It's coming out. Now, as a consumer, you don't always you don't see that because you don't realize that exact that's what's happening. But that's totally standard worldwide. So in effect, the person is receiving ninety seven dollars out of one hundred, which is incredibly efficient. When you look at you know really any other form of of charitable giving, that's super efficient, way more efficient than than, than anything else. The way we make money is through voluntary tips. So we ask the donor, hey. If you liked our service, if you want to support our company and help us to do more, would you like to give us a tip, voluntary contribution on top of your donation? So let's say the person decides to give us $5, they donated $100, their credit card bill says $105, 100 of that is donation, 97 goes to the recipient, and the $5 comes to us. And we think this is a the right model because it aligns everybody. The recipient gets the most amount of money. We're as motivated as we can to get them as much money as possible. And the donor gets to choose, do they want to support GoFundMe or not? You know, I mentioned in the title, and I have so many more questions for you, but I'm running out of time, that a quarter of the donations go to 1% of campaigns. What makes the difference for those 1% of campaigns? And I'm frightened that the answer is going to be, income levels in the area that the money's being raised? What makes the difference? No, I mean, it's, it, look, it's, it's, it's not predictable, right? Okay. So the 1% are ones that just take off and become viral social phenomenons. And what happens is they break out of raising money from friends, family, immediate community, and they become, you know, citywide, statewide, nationalwide. They just they just become big social phenomenon. And it, it's, it is actually impossible to predict which ones that's going to be. Um, it just, it, it, as you, you see, you know, on Twitter or Instagram or things that take off, things that capture people's attention, there are certain ingredients, but yes. we never know for sure what's going to happen. And, and so we see that happening. And, and I'll give you an example. Actually, Tim, I have to let you go because we're running out of time. But I just want to ask you very quickly because this is important. Have you asked yeah. Visa and MasterCard, for example, to waive the fee? Um, we, we have, you know, regular discussions with them about how we can get more of that $100 to, uh, to individuals. We would love to get it to 98, 98 and a half. Maybe <laughs> we'll work $8. on that with you too. <laughs> um, that's a long-term project, but we would love that. <laughs> throwing the gauntlet down. <laughs> I'll work on it, Tim. Come back and talk to us soon. Plenty more to discuss and great to have you on the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Tim Kerrigan there. Bye-bye. The CEO of GoFundMe. Thank you. The market opens next. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are open for trading this Tuesday and mostly lower on news of a much hotter than expected read on U.S. consumer price inflation last month. The eight straight monthly rise in prices and the biggest monthly price jump since 2008. Though remember the comparisons year over year are tough given the challenges of this time last year. Now, a mixed picture for U.S. banking majors, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs. Both are reporting robust Q2 earnings. J.P. Morgan releasing $3 billion set aside for bad loans. Goldman Sachs's investment banking really shone too. And from weightlessness to wipeout, Virgin Galactic shares continue to fall after Sunday's landmark flight with Branson on board. Shares fell 17% yesterday and are down again today as the company announces plans to sell $500 million in new stock. So raising money off the back of it and that putting some pressure on the share price. Now, one of the big disruptions brought on by the pandemic is how we pay for things with an increasing number of small and medium-sized businesses going cashless. It's been a ripe time for fintech companies, as we've discussed many times on the show. This time, Dutch payment service provider Molly says it's raised $800 million in their latest financing round, valuing the company at a cool $6.5 billion. According to CB Insights, that makes it the third largest fintech unicorn in Europe. And joining us now is Shane Hapak. He's the CEO of Molly. Congratulations on the funding round. Let's just take a step back, though, and explain what are you? What does Molly do? Who do you target? And what services do you provide? Yeah, Molly is a payment service provider online. So we target small and medium businesses that sell almost exclusively over the internet and we help them take payments. So they have a website, they run a payment transaction through us to make sure they get their money on time, flawless every day and get up and out of the box and running and trading uh, as soon as possible, which uh, is obviously very valuable in these times. So give us an example of some of the uh, companies, those small, be- small and medium sized businesses um, that are your clients. Well, I think our clients started out as, as very small and then over time just grew and morphed with the company, continued to grow. More and more businesses came online. We've got everything from organic food delivery to bird seed to exercise bikes to uh, coronavirus test booking. So really anything uh, where someone can get a digital strategy, we're there to take a payment for them. And how many new customers are you signing up each day and how many active merchants have you got? Because I saw one statistic saying that um, you are still signing up 400 to 500 new customers a day. Is that right? Yes, it is. So we're still seeing explosive growth, which is great. And we're continuing to push our geographic footprint and our product suite as as quickly as we can, for which the financing round will definitely help. But we've got about 500 customers joining a day, about 120,000 active merchants now. And that just continues to to compound uh, uh, because our customers love us so much, they uh, they tend to stick around. (laughs) But you also don't lock them in. I think that's one of the unique aspects of what you provide in terms of facilitating their online payments. They can join you, but they can leave if they find a better option. And you're sort of suggesting there that they won't. Yeah, when the DNA of the company uh, is just customer friendliness, customer first. And what we saw in the SME business is uh, not a lot of businesses love their payment service providers, generally viewed as kind of a Uh, a one-way relationship. So we just thought, hey, that's a great angle in which we can be different. And it's just persisted even if the companies become super successful. We want customers to join because they love it and stay because uh, we treat them right. Why? Why one way? Simply because they pay too high fees for the services that they are um, receiving? Yeah, well, the service is difficult to use, difficult to get up and going, difficult to onboard. Uh, in general, not filled with lots of automation, not super customer friendly, not a lot of customer success management. It's still 
you know, by and large, uh, a fairly incumbent industry in terms of how people are targeted. And uh, we, we just generally think there's a way that which we can do better. And uh, I think many companies that have taken this approach, uh, digital first, easy to use, automated, uh, have seen huge market share gains over the past. And I've also heard you talk about the idea of it being localized. And it sort of ties to what you were saying about that sort of more intimate experience. We want to make it easy. We want to be connected to the, to the customers that we have. You know, even my unbridled enthusiasm for digital disruption in the fintech space, my team now go, what, another fintech? We're talking to another fintech? Um, what differentiates you from the likes of a, a Stripe, which obviously now has a, an HQ in, in Ireland, I believe, so pushing into Europe? Um, Square is obviously another example. I can mention lots of them. What differentiates Molly? Is it that localized touch? Or other things. That's, yeah, that's definitely, I think, gotten us to this point. Obviously, as we think about long-term differentiation, we're all studying each other and saying who's doing a great job serving customers. So, I mean, at Molly, we're big admirers of the Stripe business. Obviously, hugely successful. And in general, same theme that we're both trying to pursue, which is make it easy for people to use the product and build more products that they'd like to use besides just payments. So I think where we see ourselves differentiating in the medium to long-term is continued localization. So we really want to be hyper-local in Europe and elsewhere, including customer service support, local language, relevant payment types, relevant partners and plugins and, uh, and a physical presence. So we think that differentiates us from most. Um, but from there, we'd like to continue to build products that aren't just payments. So I think we've been public about a couple of areas where we see financial services being bought by our SME customers from others, particularly banks, where we just think we can make a better product. And that's what we've started working on now with the, uh, with the extra capital. Yeah, I was about to say, $800 million can, um, can help you play and, and, and enter some of those spaces in particular. You said um, hyper-local in Europe, but elsewhere too. I mean, you know, I've, when we've talked about it on the show already, um, if I look at a similar structure in terms of accessing those that are unbanked or a high proportion that are unbanked, a localised um, structure and demand for small businesses, Latin America, for example, looks like a, a pretty great opportunity too. Where are you looking internationally potentially and, and where do you see opportunity? Yeah, I think we're formulating that plan as we speak. Uh, we always said we would want to focus on a couple of key areas, you know, a large total addressable market, a right for us to compete and win. I think there's still some very large markets where foreign payment service providers have difficulty getting licensed or the whether the product must be clunky because you're you're forced into a particular cooperation. Uh, but we also said that we you know we wanted the ability to control our own product destiny and we wanted a certain competitive landscape where we feel that we could win. And there are still a number of areas and Latin America would be a key focus as well as parts of Asia for us where we think the market stays remains underserved and Nobody's managed to crack it from outside, and that's a great challenge for us to work on. Yeah, Asia too. Very quickly, happy to stay public, uh, private, sorry, in light of your uh, ability to raise money. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we, we, we don't think about that. We've got an operating plan. We've got a lot of stuff we know we need to do. Our customers really want some things from us, and uh, what we're telling them is, hey, let's just use this capital to, to, to serve you better, uh, and we'll let the rest of it work itself out. Yeah, focus on the growth and we'll see what happens. Shane, great to chat to you. Thank you so much and um, good luck. Exciting times. The CEO Thank of Molly there. Thank you. All right, right, coming up, the CEO of Subway will be joining us. He wants a bigger bite out of Main Street with a fresh take on the humble sandwich. That's next. 
Welcome back to First Move. Making sandwiches scrumptious, my words, not theirs. Subway, the world's largest restaurant chain with more than 40,000 stores around the world, including in the United States and China, is making the biggest menu change in its history. The revamp, called Eat Fresh Refresh, kicking off today in an effort to win back customers. Joining us now is Subway CEO John Chitsey. John, fantastic to have you with us. Explain what differences consumers are going to see. Sure. So when when our new team came uh, as a group in the last year and a half or so, we obviously did a lot of consumer research. We went out and talked to lots of our franchisees. And the one thing both groups really were looking for was food innovation, which the brand hadn't had a lot of food innovation in the last five or six years. Also looking for food that was a little more craveable. So we went to work over the last 15, 16 months, really working on our core ingredients, upgrading our turkey, upgrading our ham, our new bread products, smashed avocado, lots of different core ingredients. And there's about, between new sandwiches and upgrades to core products, there's about 20 new things that we're going to uh, expose to our guests or consumers. So it's really the biggest refresh in the 56-year brand history. And so I, I think in QSR in particular, it's a very innovative industry, as you know. And so you constantly need to refresh to stay fresh, so to speak. And so what we really want to do is demonstrate to our guests and consumers that Subway is back uh, on top of its innovation game. So it's better quality ingredients we're talking about. Is that going to translate to higher prices? Yeah, that's a great question. Obviously, again, given our footprint and how big our scale is, we've been working on this for, as I said, 15 to 16 months. And we worked very hard to offset all these costs by changes in packaging, other things we did. And so we were able to do this on a cost neutral basis. So we thought, uh, as you demonstrate, or as you point out, you know, with inflation rising, Obviously, the entire quick service restaurant industry is facing price pressure. And while we don't yet know how transitory it is or how permanent it will be, obviously, if it continues at a sustained level and it's consistent, you will see some of that inevitably being passed through to the consumer. Can you give us a sense of how much? No, not at, at this point. Yeah. It's way too it's early. Challenging. We stockpiled. We bought, we bought. Yeah, it is challenging. But also, we're a little uh, insulated, at least in the short run, because of this big brand refresh. As an example, we're giving away 1 million free uh, six-inch subs today in the U.S., our Turkey Kelly Fresh Sub. And knowing how big this relaunch was, we pre-ordered lots of as much food and protein as possible. So we're uh, somewhat insulated, but obviously we will run through that. And then, again, over time, we'll figure out how permanent a lot of these cost increases are. Now, John, I can't have you on the show without talking about tuna. Uh, it, it was a report that went around like wildfire and I'm sure it was very irritating for you guys, the suggestion that your tuna products don't contain tuna. And it was a class action lawsuit that began in California, which I believe has now been amended to say that it's not made 100 percent with tuna because it doesn't always use skipjack or yellowfin tuna. John, where do you stand? What's the deal with Subway tuna, please? Can you just clarify for us? Sure. I'm really, I'm really glad you asked that question. First of all, the amended complaint, just to be corrected, now does say it is 100% tuna. They question what kind of tuna it is, but they acknowledge it is 100% tuna. But that's not the real issue, as you said. I say follow the science. And if you follow the science, you know, once tuna is cooked, its DNA becomes denatured, which means when you go to test it, which the New York Times admitted, you can't tell one way or the other. I think the other important thing is we have a website out there called subwaytunafacts.com. It will take you through all the science. Uh, you can see every bit of the, of the story there. And I think that will obviously put the facts out there and clarify all these misconceptions. The last thing I would point out is, again, we've been working on this refresh for 15 to 16 months. And if you notice, the one thing that we did not touch was our tuna. We worked on turkey. We worked on ham. We worked on chicken. We worked on steak. People love our tuna. We're very proud of our tuna. So 
uh, I think that's really the end of the story. Yes. Over and out. No red herrings as far as tuna is concerned. We'll see how uh, we'll see how that ends, John. And forgive me for the pun. Um, talk to me about what you're hearing from franchisees, because you clearly have a lot of competition out there on the high street. The pandemic was challenging. We've seen a shift to sort of digital to takeaway menus. There's lots of things, I think, rising wage costs as well for your franchisees. What are you hearing from them and some of the, the challenges that they're facing? Sure. Well, first of all, lots of things that have been going on even before the refresh. So, right. you, you know, you mentioned digital as an example. And while, which was probably more important to us, contactless curbside pickup, digital third-party delivery, because we don't have drive-throughs like a McDonald's or a Burger King, or we have very limited, shall we say. And despite that, we've had a 217% increase in digital sales since 2019. Our third-party delivery sales are up 260%. So we've been wow. busily improving our digital experience really trying to drive consumers that way anyway. So I would argue COVID was actually an accelerant in pushing the business where it was already headed. So franchisees are very happy at thinking the investments we're making in that space and what they're what they're starting to see. The other thing I would say, not just true in the US, but in Europe and Asia, in large parts of the world, uh, the first six months of the year, the brand, 75% of the brand, which would be a system you know, larger than McDonald's has been positive. If you look at the and positive, not just against 2020, but against 2019, wow. if you look at the second quarter of this year, the entire brand on average is positive. So things are definitely moving in the right direction. I look at this refresh as a way to just throw gas on the fire. The brand has already really started to move nicely over the last six months. So I'm, I'm very encouraged by what we've seen over the last three to six months, both in the U.S., but more importantly, globally. I mean, this growth looks incredible. What proportion of the business, though, remains people going in store versus ordering online? Can you break that down for us in terms of percentages? Sure, sure. I mean, the majority is still in in restaurant. Uh, the digital piece is growing, like I said, very nicely. Um, it's you know strongly in the double digits, approaching twenty percent as it continues to climb. So you know we're very excited about all that, um, and that obviously doesn't count takeout. If you put, I'm purely looking at digital, if you will. You know, mm. if you count takeout, it's obviously a larger percentage. But in restaurant, still today is a, is a big piece of our business, albeit you know, starting to trend downwards due to all these other channels that are out there. And any challenges in hiring for your franchisees? I saw McDonald's this week announcing all sorts of additional benefits that they'll help with tuition fees, that kind of thing. Are, are you having to make sort of promises or your franchisees having to make promises like that to, to get people in the door to work for them? Yes. I mean, it, it's it's a struggle um, in the U.S. for sure. It's a struggle globally, uh, as you know, as well. The one advantage we have on our restaurant footprint, though, is, you know, we're a much smaller footprint than a traditional quick service restaurant, hamburger chain, et cetera. So we need less labor than other people. Having said that, you know, we still need labor. One of the things we did, again, knowing Refresh was coming, we got out in front in May um, on our digital app and pushed heavy for hiring. And we were able to hire about 40,000 people um, in that time frame. So, so that helped. It's just, as you noted, it's a huge system. Um, labor's always been a bit of an issue in the quick service restaurant industry. And this is just uh, one of those times that we all have to just fight our way through. Brilliant. John, fantastic to have you on the show. Quick question, final question, very quick one. Do you eat your tuna? I absolutely do. It's one of my two favorite sandwiches. <laughs> What's the other one? This Turkey Cali Fresh, the million subs that were given away in the U.S. today. I love that. Uh, and there we go. I know, I know it sounds like a shameless plug, but it is one of my favorites. I mean, it definitely sounds like a shameless plug, but we did it. John, thank you for joining us. Good to chat to you. Almost we'll speak soon. John Chitsy there, the CEO of Subway. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Coming up from Subway to London's world-renowned restaurants. They're finally back in business again, and we've got the latest. That's next. 
London's restaurant industry, a sector that suffered severely under months-long COVID restrictions, is now roaring back. As Salma Abdelaziz heard from one top chef, reopenings brings both joys and challenges. Food, not made at home or delivered in a box, but chef-developed, expertly prepared and beautifully plated, is back. After more than a year of closures and restrictions, London's restaurants are buzzing again. From his acclaimed restaurant, Nopi, Chef Yotam Aralenge told us it's about bringing people together. As someone who serves food for a living, and not doing it feels so terrible and unnatural. The author of 11 cookbooks told us lockdown forced him to change and innovate. This is where all the magic happens, behind the scenes. There's an immense flexibility in the, in the hospitality industry. It's people who think on their feet, act on their feet. So as an industry, we moved really quickly from serving people on site to deliveries and takeout. Head chef David Bravo said he used his time at home to get creative. Having all this time, we're just kind of thinking on new dishes, new recipes, or what we can do with leeks or what we can do with carrots, using in a different forms. But while people are eager to finally dine out, the industry cannot find the human resources needed to serve them. We're struggling to hire on all fronts. So you put an ad out for Kitchen Porter and you've got very few candidates um, applying. A third of venues reopened without adequate staffing, according to one survey. Post-Brexit immigration rules and a sense of instability makes recruitment and retention more difficult. General Manager Pierre Malouf told us many of his friends and colleagues have quit their jobs. It feels very sad. A couple of times on the bus to work, I did have a little cry because I think you, uh, we didn't get a chance to say goodbye. There was such a mass exodus that it, we never got the closure and now we have to rebuild again. Pre-COVID, an estimated half of hospitality workers were EU citizens. But over the last year, many have returned to Europe, government data shows. But while the industry struggles to find solutions, consumer demand is soaring. And the one thing I'm really confident is, is that people will want to eat out because it's one of the few joys, uh, communal joys that we still have. And restaurants are the perfect places for that. Hope that the revival of London's food scene will lead to renaissance and reunion. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN, London. And finally, on First Move, a heartwarming story from Manchester, the hometown of England forward Marcus Rashford. After he missed his penalty in the Eurofinal on Sunday, a mural in his honour was defaced. The police are now investigating. Well, now Mancunians are rallying in support of the player, covering the mural with hearts and messages of solidarity, saying, hero. Rashford said on social media that he's never going to apologise for who he is or where he came from, and rightly so. He was the youngest person ever to top the giving list of the Sunday Times. Marcus Hart. That's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson is next. We'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.